A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Hey, want to say thanks to uh, our many fine sponsors. Now, we've got some dandies. I want to thank uh, John Staples and the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Also, his son, Jeff Staples, uh, from ERA. This, this guy is such a, such a great realtor. And Jeff Staples Real Estate is actually one of our sponsors now. And I want you to, uh, to think about them both when you are per- purchasing a home or maybe you're uh, getting ready to sell a home. These are the guys you want to talk to. Also... I want to thank Nikki's uh, Wholesale Food Warehouse in Salt Lake City for being a sponsor of the show. I'll be telling you more about some of the stuff going on there. Anyhow, welcome. I, I, I'm just struggling a little bit. I've had some time to think about this. Uh, apparently, last night, in the dark hours, uh, uh, members of the Utah County Commission, where I live, passed some kind of a, a resolution. It's, it's uh, supposed to be a binding resolution on the citizens declaring that uh, they are requiring everyone to wear a face mask in public. This is after Governor Herbert, in a dramatic announcement yesterday, moved two cities in, in Utah County, Orem and uh, also Provo, from yellow to orange on the threat scale. Now, the concern is, well, there have been more cases of COVID-19. Yeah, I get that. There have been more positive tests. Tell me how many hospitalizations there have been, especially among the young people, because they're really pointing the finger at, uh, you know, college students at Utah Valley University, at BYU. Well, these students, they're so stupid and young, they don't even know what they're doing. They're out there spreading this disease, blah, blah, blah. So now there is a mask mandate for the county in which I live. Now, thankfully... Our sheriff has already said, I'm not going to waste time or manpower enforcing these. So somebody wants to call the police. That's that's one thing. But here's what's happening. Now, all these businesses that have been requiring masks, you know, again, at the behest of, of health officials are saying, OK, we now have some legal reasoning for doing so. And as much as I want to make this impassioned, dramatic speech that, uh, you know, nails it and, you know, drives home that this is, I I understand, this is not Braveheart. (laughs) I'm not riding around on horseback with my face painted blue and white. Um, But I will say this. Okay, here's as dramatic as I'm going to get. No. I'm sorry. I am going to take it up a notch. Hell no. I'm not going to comply. And then the sad thing to me is this is setting the stage for conflict that doesn't even have to be. And I'm not talking about me going out and confronting store owners or employees about why I'm not wearing a mask. This is setting the stage for conflict even within my own family. And I'm just going to be really direct. It pisses me off. It makes me so angry that politicians who don't even have legitimate authority to hand out mandates like this are claiming the authority to do so. And what's worse is enough of my fellow citizens are in fear that they're going along with it. 
and they will go along with it, and they'll feel absolutely justified in jumping all over those of us who will not get on board. Now, look, I'll, I'll allow for the fact I may be totally wrong for, for the stance that I'm taking. I, I don't make any claim of infallibility. But I have the strongest sense, and this is, this is not because of my superior reasoning and my great intellect. I don't have either of those things. But my heart is pretty attuned into right and wrong. And my heart is telling me that this is the time for people who are serious about liberty to stand. And what that means is not, you know, take up the pitchforks and torches and go march on the Capitol. This means that you've got to be willing to stand up and say, no, I won't do it. And you've got to do that knowing that it's going to be uncomfortable and that it is going to likely lead to pain and, and probably some discord <laughs> in, the, in the relationships around you. But I think we are being given a chance. We are being given a test, if you will, to see who just gives lip service to, yeah, man, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free and, you know, wave the flag and I feel so good about it and, you know, nobody can tell me this ain't the greatest country on earth. We can talk the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, believe it or not, it's the little things like this that test our commitment. And it's not that I think COVID is a big hoax, and it's not that I think everybody who wears a mask is stupid. What I'm, what I'm pushing back on here, and where I must push back, is there are people in positions of authority who are claiming, no, usurping power that is not rightly theirs. They are claiming control and power over people that is not theirs to exercise. And I cannot go along with it. Even if it makes everybody, you know, calm down. Well, we'll, our, we'll all get along and eventually this will go away. My concern is it's not going to go away. That's the test. If you'll submit to this, well, it's not so much worse to ask you to do this or tell you to do this or mandate that you must do this or else. So there's my answer. No. And I have no idea how uncomfortable life is going to be for me <laughs> in the next little bit. I think the the um, declaration they signed is supposed to expire October 20th. Do you think it really will, though? They've had their taste of power. I'm willing to bet they probably found it to their, to their liking. All right, I'm going to hop off the soapbox. Otherwise, I will start to I will start trying to get to all philosophical. It's your turn. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Is that me? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, good. Thank you for taking my call. Um, okay, um, to the point. And that is, I'm in a better situation. You know, I, I didn't wear it at first. My job required it at times. Um, and then, you know, it got to the point lately where at Walmart, everybody's wearing one. So I'm in a better situation. So what I did is I grew out my beard. And, of course, my beard is white. And, you know, because I'm going on 70. And what I do is I have a um, a scarf, a, a bandana around my neck. And, and I'm walking in Walmart around the stores. And everybody can see I have a white beard. 
you know, so there, that makes me look as though I'm at risk. And then if somebody gives me a dirty look, I just kind of pull up my bandana, and it's so loose it falls right back down like I'm this this incompetent old person, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then if somebody really makes an issue, you know, I, I, say, I tell them, I say, look, at I'm under, uh, you know, I have leukemia, so please give me some distance. I, I, I'm... Um, and and then people just leave me alone, and so I you know I don't wear the mask you know it's down and so I I guess I'm taking advantage. Nobody's ever yelled at me and nobody's ever you know you know when when they give me a dirty look and I pull it up and it just kind of falls right back down. People leave me alone and I, and I do distance you know and I do smile at people and shake my head nod my head hello you know but I've kind of. Um, it works. It works great. You know, then I don't have to get into the debate, you know, in the yelling debate. Right. You know, you know, and, and I understand now that the the, um, the experiments on the mask, you know, have shown. I, I even hear they're doing double blind studies now and they're showing that they just don't work and they do more harm than good. So um, and yet here we so have this I, mandate. I, have a lot of fun. I, I like yes. your approach and, and Ray, your approach is is not going to cause confrontation, or at least it shouldn't. Right. Maybe somebody out there is going to feel froggy and feel like, well, I got to set you straight. You're not wearing that right, but <laughs> but you you should be able to skate on that. I I'm just I'm really <laughs> frustrated. I I I have no intention of going along with it, and I just I don't know how you communicate to people. I'm not trying to be a jerk about this, but right. I, there's more at stake here then we're trying to keep a virus at bay or prevent spreading disease. This is about seeing how well, far we will kneel or how quickly we will kneel when we are told to by someone who doesn't have legitimate authority to tell us to. Exactly. I, I think the best defense is keeping ourselves healthy. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know and the, the, the coronavirus is mutating so fast. By the t- time they come up with a vaccine, I don't think it's going to work. They're going to have to come up with another one. I mean, they always mutate. And I heard, today I heard a statistic that in, in America, I don't think it's the world. I'm pretty sure it was America. That the only the amount of people who died only from the coronavirus and nothing else is only 8,000. Yeah, it's minuscule. Ray, thanks for your call. We'll take a quick break. I don't know if anybody else wants to vent, but you have that opportunity. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 is the number. Thanks for letting me vent. Okay, I feel better for having said what I said, but... I'm still at a little bit of a loss as to, so wh- where do you go from here? What do you do? I think that uh, I think we're all going to face hard decisions at some point, but I don't think they're going to get any easier from this point on. Maybe that's why I'm, I'm wanting to draw that line and say, nope, <laughs> not, a, not an inch further right now, while it's still relatively painless to do so, because I have a sense that it's going to get a lot more painful if we allow this to continue. Got a couple of examples. Did you know the CDC is actually recommending don't uh, don't let your kids trick or treat? Yeah. 
for real. Let's cancel Halloween because that's an at-risk territory, or an at-risk activity, rather. <sighs> we'll talk more about some of, some of the things that are actually happening. Like, uh, why, why isn't the media saying anything about Sweden and uh, their lack of spike? Where's their second wave? Where's all the hospitalizations? Oh, it's not happening. Huh, I wonder why. Back to the phone. Sam, welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian, and like you... This is no mask territory here, too, and uh, I'm blessed because I know several other people around here in town that uh, are never going to wear masks as well. And um, But one of the things I thought I would mention, you know, this social distancing stuff is something that gets to me, too. This is all psychological warfare. Now, my wife and I went to a Bible conference up, in, uh, up uh, near Edgerton, Missouri, uh, Everton, Missouri, rather, and we went up there, and this was way out in the middle of nowhere. It's about by the time it was all over with, I think there's about seventy of us there at this particular Bible retreat that we went to. And these are people that all get what's going on. These are not your average run-of-the-mill people that just hang out in mainstream Christian churches. These were people that knew what was going on. We had a good time. We worshipped. Uh, there was singing. There was uh, plenty of food, and not only that. But we hugged one another. There was no social distancing either. And uh, you know what? I'm still here. I'm doing fine. And as far as I know, they're all doing fine. Huh. Almost like this uh, this particular virus only is really a deadly threat to less than 1% of the people who get it. <laughs> Well, here again, I still hold to the fact that um, basically where I draw the line on this, I'm not saying there is a virus, and I'm not saying there isn't a virus. All I say is they tell me there is. That doesn't mean nothing. They tell me there is. How do we know these people aren't coming down with other stuff like pneumonia, the flu, or whatever else might be the case, or some other weird thing, you know, when their immune systems are already in the toilet? attitude is let's solve this whole problem by uh, supplementing our diet with things that boost our immune system uh, immune systems take good care of our health eat eat properly and you know what we all just might get along real good here here I agree simple as that Sam thanks for weighing in great to hear from yeah. you 801-331-8113 I know there are going to be some uh, some folks out protesting um, at least where, where I live in Utah County, uh, just south of Salt Lake City. And and I'm not telling you that even a protest is necessarily the, the thing to do. Um, for some, it may be, you know, well, I want to make my voice heard. And I'm not going to tell you not to. I'm not going to tell you that you shouldn't be wearing a mask at all. Please understand. I, I just I, I have to make this distinction. I'm saying the government has no power to try to compel you whether it's through threatening words or through someone actually pointing a gun at you and saying, put the mask on. They do not have that right to do that. It's not within their legitimate powers. And you can hear the talk about, well, this poses a clear and present threat and danger. I mean, there's all kinds of legalese. I read the resolution, and and, uh, when when my gag reflex finally stopped twitching, uh, I went ahead and finished reading it. It's it's just standard legalese boilerplate, blah, blah, blah. Look at this. We are, you know, hereby and whereunto and therefore, whereas they're trying to cover their their bases. But it doesn't change the fact that they're ordering something to take place that they have no rightful authority to do. And if you do not tell them no. 
you just make it that much easier the next time somebody wants to flex in a way that they're really not supposed to. And, and you look and ask yourself, where does it go? I mean, the CDC, I mentioned before, they're, they're trying to publish guidance now on how to approach the coming fall holidays. Okay, well, right now, this is on their radar screen. They're saying that uh, um, basically Halloween should be off the table. Don't trick or treat because COVID-19 is out there. Uh, the CDC uh, warned in a release yesterday, actually on Monday, many traditional Halloween activities can be high risk for spreading viruses. There are several safer alternative ways to participate in Halloween. So the very safest activities, according to them, carving pumpkins with members of your own household, properly masked, I'm sure, having a scary movie night or throwing a virtual Halloween costume contest. How fun. Small outdoor gatherings are classified as moderately risky, and the quintessential Halloween activity, door-to-door trick-or-treating, is considered higher risk. So they say avoid these higher-risk activities to help spread the, help prevent the spread of the virus that causes COVID-19. Participating in traditional trick-or-treating where treats are handed to children who go door-to-door. Having trunk-or-treats where treats are handed out from trunks of cars lined up in large parking lots. Attending crowded costume parties held indoors. Going to an indoor haunted house where people may be crowded together and screaming. Going on hay rides or tractor rides with people who are not in your household. Using alcohol or drugs which can cloud judgment and increase risky behaviors. Traveling to a rural fall festival that's not in your community if you live in an area with community spread of COVID-19. Look, I understand the, the desire to keep people safe. And I want to make very clear, if I had any symptoms whatsoever, or if I even thought that I might be sick, I certainly would not go out and try to expose other people to it. I wouldn't go to work. I wouldn't go, you know, to church. I wouldn't go where there were people going to be gathered. And as, as bad as I feel having to, to say this, I'm not freaking stupid. But apparently this is something lost on government because, well, you're not obeying us, so therefore you must be stupid. Nope. I'm smart enough to see through what you're doing and what you're peddling. I'm not buying. So if Halloween is off the table, what do you say? Thanksgiving? Christmas? Just how different do you suppose those are going to be this year under the recommended CDC guidelines? I don't think I even want to know. Caller, welcome to the show. At me? Yep. Hey, uh, yeah, you know, and then when we get there, he's just going to move the goalposts again like they've been doing for the last six months. That does seem to be the pattern. He'll do it. He and that Dr. Andrea, uh, an epidemiologist. Done, I guess his name is. But anyway, there's a huge amount of, you know, vermin under these masks, germs, you know. I mean, my daughter... She got walking pneumonia because of the stuff that incubated under her mask. And that's what the doctor said. He told her to quit wearing those damn masks. She still got a sinus infection, and she was coughing for at least over a month. Finally, her cough is letting up. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because there are exemptions to wearing a mask. And I, and, well, I, know you know, that, and I don't want to waste time with that. Right. I, I mean... But the, but it doesn't change the line. They shouldn't be te- the the bottom line that they shouldn't be telling us this in the first place. The parents in Elder County, the children are coming home with massive headaches. You know, it's from the carbon dioxide. 
and and uh, and uh, they told asked the superintendent of the district up there if he, you know, mentioned that to the governor and give him a waiver. And he says, no, it's set in stone, Governor Hoover Herbert. That's what he told him. And uh, all the, on the weather on TV this morning, the Channel Four weather girl goes, well, there's a lot of people having headaches with the mask, but it's not the mask; it's the pollution from California. Sure it is. (laughs) Well, I appreciate your call. I'm going to take a quick break here. Got a couple other things I'd like to share with you. Why do we lose our trust in the media, by the way? I got a great essay to share with you coming up just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention that uh, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse is one of our sponsors. If you live in or around the Salt Lake City area and you're serious about stretching your grocery buying dollar, you really need to check this out. Now, the best way to get directions is to go to their Facebook page, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Keep in mind that uh, they have all the food that's purchased from local food distribution companies. They have the lowest prices on produce, grocery items, meats. This is one of the reasons I like to go there because that's how I keep my smoker well stocked and have something to do on the weekends. And, of course, EBT, checks, cash, most all credit cards are accepted, and everything is backed 100%, guaranteed. You know, if you're not happy with it, you get your money back. Tell them that uh, their advertising message reached your ears. And again, if you're in the Salt Lake City area and you are serious about stretching your uh, grocery buying dollar as far as it can go, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, look them up on Facebook, get the directions, go pay them a visit. All right, I'm going to move on to a couple other things here. I've just had to get this off my chest about how how frustrated I am that that there appears to be no return to, to living life even just without fear. I understand. Yes, there's a virus out there and we have to be careful. <sighs> but there's no context being given. There's there's nothing to suggest that, hey, if you are under the age of 70 and in reasonably good health, you actually have very little to fear from this. For some reason, we're supposed to all walk around scared with our faces hidden and, and cowering every time someone comes within five feet, nine inches of you. <gasps> ah, I might get it. And I put a lot of the blame on the, the way that the media has run with this narrative of fear, just pure, unadulterated fear everywhere we turn. They won't talk about the fact that hospitalizations are very modest. They're not being overrun. They're not out of ventilators. They're not out of beds. They're not having trouble, you know, keeping all the bodies, you know, because there's too many for the morgue. But, oh, the cases, the cases are up. So it raises a question, what do you do when your information sources are so hopelessly compromised? Even if it's not about COVID, there are, there are a number of other issues where the news media seems to turn a very curious blind eye. Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says news sources on the political left, like the New York Times, claim climate change is responsible for the fires in the West. 
And then those on the right, like the Epic Times, say arsonists lit the matches that set off the tinderboxes left by decades of mistaken environmental, environmentalist policies, like bans on commercial logging. So the media is also split on partisan lines over just about every aspect of coronavirus, including its alleged novelty. And instead of uniting against the scourge of modern slavery, historical slavery has become yet another partisan whipping post. But he says most disturbingly of all, some major social media sites like Facebook have taken it upon themselves to protect their users from supposed misinformation, but they seem to disfavor the source of the information instead of its objective quality. YouTube's recent removal of an important Scott Atlas video about the coronavirus is just the latest in a troubling series of deplatforming moves. Even more disturbing, the New York Times, a reputed newspaper of record, apparently has not covered the decision in Butler County v. Wolf. This is the one out of Pennsylvania, very important anti-lockdown federal district court ruling that bashed shelter-in-place orders, business shutdowns, and such. Now, Robert Wright says when he recently searched and he says, I swear on a stack of Bibles, this is not doctored in any way. Here's what Google returned. He searched for Butler County v. Wolf, New York Times. And the only thing that came up was there was a hit about Jeffrey Tucker, who is one of the editors for American Institute for Economic Research. And in a little byline underneath it, it said, and Boston University has been quoted in the New York Times and Washington Post, appears regularly in Newsweek and many other popular venues. They never even reported on it. And Robert Wright says, look, independent NGOs like AIER have done their best to try to provide unbiased factual analysis of many censored and misunderstood topics. But they're few and none are dedicated news outlets. Most of their knowledge workers, he says, like him, are scholars who dislike making hot takes on current events. But clearly there is a large demand for news you can't abuse. And this is not the first time in U.S. history that the news media has been highly partisan. Pretty much every American newspaper from the founding of the Republic until the second half of the 19th century was a partisan rag, so named due to the cotton content of the high-quality paper that they used, beholden to some politician or faction for its existence. The problem was that most papers could not generate enough advertising or subscription revenue. The two were interdependent, of course, and that means they couldn't keep their expensive operations going without a subsidy from somebody. So they towed their benefactor's political line, becoming, as the phrase went, their organ. Later, though, technological improvements in printing presses reduced the cost of producing newspapers, especially ones printed on new, cheap wood pulp paper. As a result, many papers became more independent, and a few big city dailies became lucrative enough to become newspapers of record. The New York Times was the most famous of them. Any paper, a newspaper can become a paper of record that publishes all the news that's fit to print. The slogan on the New York Times masthead since 1897, when people implicitly trust its reporting to be objective and accurate because of its expected future profitability. The value in its brand of, in modern parlance is so great that no rational owner or publisher would dare sully its reputation. Profits and expected prof, future profits bred trust thus ensuring the subscription and advertising revenue that would ensure those future profits. But in the 1990s, he says, new technological advancements, especially the Internet, began to chip away at that virtuous cycle. 
the future value of once seemingly invincible brands like the New York Times fell under a pall. In fact, the New York Times stock price bottomed at about $4 per share in 2009 from a high of almost $50 a share just seven years earlier. Now, it has since rebounded, but nobody thinks of it as a utility stock anymore. Other once-mighty newspapers of record lost much of their value early in the new millennium and in the process became politicized partisan shills once again. Jeff Bezos' Washington Post is perhaps the clearest example, but too many news articles read more like op-eds at most papers these days. To once again enjoy a newspaper of record that publishes all the news in a just-the-facts-ma'am manner, another technological innovation will be necessary. This is opportunity knocking for somebody. Robert Wright says a news outlet that posted a bond with a third party that would be forfeited if it insisted on publishing anything factually wrong or crossed the line between journalism and punditry could create the sort of trust that people once had in the New York Times and other papers of record, all of which essentially posted informal bonds backed by their reputations and expected future profitability. But he says right now, journalists' incentives are all wrong. Controversy and clickbait garner page views, which lead to revenue. The bonding mechanism would change, would change that incentive because the ad revenue would be reduced, obliterated, and maybe even reversed if gained through a deceptive story or misleading headline. In other words, they would be subject to market forces if they fudge the facts. Now, he says, of course, I proffer this as a business idea, not a regulation, Newspapers should be allowed to continue to push partisan tripe if they want. And he says, I sure hope those sites that offer to reveal secrets I won't believe to drivers in whatever state I happen to be in at the time stick with their business models such as they are. But again, it seems that many people still want one or more newspapers of record where they can learn about what happened without getting some baked 30-somethings, half-baked memory of her sociology class baked into the story. He says, I imagine a media quality assurance bond would be a fairly substantial sum of money to make it credible, but it would allow for retractions and corrections under specific guidelines because, after all, nobody is perfect. Facebook, Twitter, Parler, and such could allow links to the articles without fear of blowback, and, of course, users could add their respective interpretations as they would be clearly firewalled from the article in the bonded newspaper of record. In other words, nobody will be able to confuse my sarcastic commentary about the story with the story itself. And, of course, readers would remain free to continue to read shills like the Washington Post or switch to a bonded newspaper of record. Now, he says, maybe I'm wrong. Too few people want a real newspaper of record anymore, in which case I would be right about entering the age of idiocracy. But maybe, just maybe, there are enough people out there looking for news they can once again trust to build a profitable business at the expense of the hype masters. The media quality assurance bond is just a specific application of what he calls corporate malfeasance bonds, which are mechanisms designed to induce corporations to keep promises they make to stakeholders without any need for government regulators. But he says, let's not try out new ideas rooted in both uh, history and information theory. Let's keep having inane discussions about broad subjects like capitalism and corporate social responsibility that even the most ignorant feel like they can contribute to because, after all, he says the devil is never in the details and incentives don't matter. See? Clearly sarcasm. (laughs) It's a great piece, but it's also a really great idea. Who wants to step up and make it a reality?
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A quick shout-out to our sponsors at the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I know the real estate market is on fire right now. A lot of people are on the move, too. It's just been one of those years. I think some people said, hey, you know, California, it's been nice, but we're getting out. Well, if you are looking for a home loan or if you're looking to refinance your existing home mortgage, you need to talk to my friend John Staples and his lovely wife, Heather, at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very, very simple to find. Go to staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com. Please tell them I came to check you guys out because Brian said such kind, kind things about you. I want you to know, I'm not just saying nice words. They really are absolutely as good and even better than what I'm telling you. But I do want you to find it out for yourself. Staplesmortgage.com. Scope them out. Okay, two quick stories here in the closing segment of the show here. I want to share with you, uh, this is an article, you know, there, there's a lot of friction with the striction, stricter COVID-19 mandates and, and personal freedom. That friction is getting more intense by the day. And John Tierney has a remarkable article. This was on cityjournal.org, The Moral Case for Reopening Schools Without Masks. Now, I'll give you a moment to reach for your heart medication, because I'm sure you clutched your chest and gasped as, as you heard someone well, opening schools without masks. How, how can this be? Here's what he says. John Tierney says, if you're a public-minded student or teacher committed to reducing the death toll from COVID-19, what is the morally correct way to behave? Well, according to epidemiologist Sunetra Gupta, you should do just about the opposite of what's being preached by college presidents, teachers, unions, political leaders, and the scientific and media establishment. Unless you're elderly or particularly vulnerable, you shouldn't be wearing a mask all day or shaming others for going unmasked. You should be careful not to endanger the vulnerable, but otherwise you should be exposing yourself to the virus in order to promote herd immunity. Now, Dr. Gupta wants to teach her classes at Oxford in person without a mask, and she's appalled at her colleagues' reluctance to go back to the classroom. She says it's such a disservice to this generation of students. Teachers and students who are vulnerable should have the option to go online, but for the rest of us, this virus is no bigger than the other risks we take in daily life. It's not rational, and certainly not communitarian, to avoid being infected with a pathogen that carries such a low risk to you when there's a high benefit to the community by helping to create herd immunity. Gupta's strategy is heresy to the public health department, but it seems to be paying off in Sweden, and her research team at Oxford has a far better track record on COVID-19 than the scientists whose work inspired the widespread lockdowns and mask mandates in the first place. In March, when Neil Ferguson's team at Imperial College London terrified politicians and the public with its projections of COVID deaths, more than 500,000 in Britain and 2 million in the United States, Gupta's team warned that this scenario was based on dubious assumptions about the virus's spread and lethality. The Imperial computer model assumed that most of the population had not yet been exposed to an exceptionally lethal virus, so lockdowns were the only way to avoid mass casualties. Gupta's model, by contrast, assumed that many people had already been exposed without suffering serious consequence. That meant that the virus wasn't so lethal and that the United Kingdom and other places were already developing herd immunity, making lockdowns unnecessary. 
Gupta was dubbed Professor Reopen, as opposed to Imperial's Professor Lockdown, and she was pilloried along with a few others who shared her views. Officials at the World Health Organization and National Institutes of Health condemned the strategy of relying on herd immunity. Anthony Fauci, the White House advisor, said it would lead to a completely unacceptable number of deaths, perhaps more than 10 million Americans by one calculation, published by scientists in the New York Times. A group of Swedish doctors and scientists denounced their country for keeping daycare centers, primary schools, bars, restaurants and stores open, declaring in in late July that the policy was leading to needless death, grief and suffering because Sweden was nowhere near herd immunity. Care to guess what really happened? Pull up a chair. In fact, though, this strategy now seems to have fostered herd immunity in Sweden and other places. The number of daily COVID deaths in Sweden, which peaked at 115 in April, has averaged just two since the beginning of August. Fewer than 6,000 Swedes have died, a far cry from the nearly 100,000 deaths projected by the imperial model. Per capita, the United States and Britain have suffered more COVID deaths than Sweden, and the fatality rates in the states of New York and New Jersey are three times higher than Sweden's. Gee, I wonder. Is it possible there might have been a better way to have handled this? You really should check out this article. Again, this is the moral case for reopening schools without masks, and it has to do with herd immunity. Now, keep in mind, herd immunity can't eliminate deaths, just like ordinary flu viruses. COVID-19 will remain endemic even if a vaccine arrives. Do you understand that? Even when the vaccine is here, people will still die of COVID. But herd immunity ends the epidemic by greatly slowing the spread. And the elderly and other high-risk people still need to be careful. And, uh, and Professor Gupta favors continuing policies to shield them from the virus. But the best long-term strategy for protecting them is letting the low-risk people build up herd immunity now. For American children under 14, the risk of dying from COVID is lower than the risk of dying from the flu or from pneumonia. That's according to the calculations of Avik Roy, president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. For teenagers and young adults, it's much lower than the risk of being murdered. And for anyone under 55, it's lower than the risk of dying from accidents, from cancer, or from heart disease. So if college students are willing to get in a car, why should they be terrified of sitting in a lecture hall? And why should they be reviled, much less expelled, for fraternizing with other students and helping to build up herd immunity? Professor Gupta says the COVID isolation strategies are accompanied by a lot of virtue signaling and self-righteousness. But the costs are very high on the poor around the world as well as the young. She says, I find it intolerable for teachers to ask youth to give up this important phase of their development, to slow the development of herd immunity. If we really care about the common good and protecting the vulnerable, the rest of us should be willing to take a very small personal risk. Do you understand? There is risk involved, but you just have to be willing to accept risk in order for the greater gain of herd immunity. <sighs> Sometimes I wish the people who are making these power grabs at the state and local levels and even at the federal level would take the time to think this out. I don't, I don't know if they would come to a different conclusion, though. If it interferes with my power, it must be a bad thing. 
All right, let's end on a brighter note. Great article by Shannon Roberts on intellectualtakeout.org. It seems that millennials are more willing to commit. Now, she points out here that uh, millennials have been hailed as selfish and unreliable, entitled, snowflake-like, to say the least. In fact, Time magazine once labeled them the me, me, me generation. But it turns out they just might be the next generation to want to stay in a job for life and store money under the mattress for a rainy day. Or an extra violent flu season, for that matter. Keep in mind that millennials and Generation Z have experienced a lot of disruption in their short lives, moving between major financial crises and then a pandemic, which governments have turned the, the world upside down for, surely has some sort of psychological effect. So for millennials, the world is likely seeming like a less and less secure place. If the millennials' childhood message was, you can do anything, the one they pass on to their children might be, you should plan for anything. Older millennials graduated directly into the 2008 financial crisis that upended the labor market and made many attractive jobs disappear. Then there was the rise of contract labor with few of the protections or benefits of stable employment. Now there's a major pandemic. This means millennials have never experienced sustained financial security. They joined the workforce during the 2008 recession. Now, a decade later, and right when they should be hitting their salary stride, they're facing another historic economic downturn. So forget what you've heard about avocado toast and $7 lattes. More of them are saving more and spending less than their parents. Now, there are a couple of drawbacks. Uh, apparently, they're, they're very hesitant to have children. And I know some people are like, why would you want to bring a child into a world as chaotic and as messed up as ours is right now? But believe it or not, we need population growth. And there are solutions that come with it. Yes, there are challenges that come with population growth, but solutions that come as well. And the article concludes that if too many millennials and Generation Z include in, indeed choose not to have children... More economic and social drama could well be on the horizon for them. I don't know. It seems to me that if you're looking especially at that uh, fourth turning methodology, this is probably comparable to that greatest generation, the one that lived through the Great Depression, the one that fought World War II. I think the millennials and Generation Z are probably going to have some pretty heavy lifting. What can we do to help them? rather than sit there and label them and tear them down. This is The Brian Hyde Show.